Hello, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for an episode of History Comics Podcast, this time with the life of Windsor McKay, the brilliant innovator of comic strips and cartoons. When one uses the term cartoon today, we usually associate with animated short films or TV shows. However, before animation was even invented, it was the term to refer to comic strips and newspapers, or single-panel cartoons, as they were called, and only changed over time as many of them would be adapted into the animation itself. Someone who was a large factor in this was Windsor McKay, who was not only one of the most innovative creators in comic strips, but the first to adapt one into a cartoon. McKay wouldn't just stop there, as he would push both comic strips and animation to new heights that have rarely been equaled, becoming one of the great innovators in either medium, and like many great innovators of their field, he came from very fairly humble beginnings. Windsor McKay's father, Robert McKay, was born in West Zora, near Woodstock, Ontario, Canada in 1840, where he would later become a Freemason, something his son would follow. Robert would marry Janet Murray, a neighbor from East Zora, on January 8, 1866, at the Methodist Episcopal Church, and a new couple would later travel to Spring Lake, Michigan. Robert McKay had been there a few years earlier and was later employed by the American entrepreneur Zenas G. Windsor, who was involved in numerous enterprises such as fur trading, timber, and exporting. Robert and Janet McKay apparently developed deep feelings for his employer as they would name their firstborn son after him, Zenas Windsor McKay, who would be born a few years later, with it being unknown but between 1867 and 1871 on September 26th, the latter which McKay would insist on. This confusion was largely due to a fire in Spring Lake on May of 1893 that destroyed many local records. However, it is also rumored by Janet McKay that the family returned to Ontario in 1867 for his birth, but with no birth records, the date can never be truly certain. Windsor's siblings, Arthur in 1868 and May in 1876, would soon follow, while Robert McKay worked his way up in his employment to Zenas Windsor, beginning as an unskilled teamster leading horses to later becoming a retail grocer. In 1885, the family would move to Stanton, where Robert McKay also bought two half-lots of uh, land for $100, becoming a real estate agent, and by 1905 was also a notary republic. Soon, Robert McKay's brother Hugh joined in with a $200 purchase northeast of Stanton, which would be the first of many land deals with, with them and the Cutlers and Savage Lumber Company, one of the largest in the West. In addition, the spelling of their name, McKay, was changed to two C's from the original K, reportedly to avoid a bar fight when the three Scotsmen believed Robert was a part of an unknown McKay clan with a K, as they needed a fourth to fight the Irish McGee clan. Robert McKay used this as an excuse to avoid the whole thing. Windsor McKay, who would drop his first name Zenas in favor of his middle name Windsor, would soon show his artistic ability early on with an etching of the family home burning on a frosted window pane at their neighbor's house with a five-penny nail when he was just five years old. It wasn't long that many others realized young Windsor was obsessed with drawing, and he would later state that success was 15% talent and 85% hard work, and many, including his parents, claimed he was an expert by the age of six years old. He would repeat pictures for his school board drawings and even sold them for money, as young Windsor McKay would state he never cared to keep them, only in creating them. He would soon sketch everything he saw, from cars to fences to horses, studying every detail from cat's claw marks on the door to the folds in the sheet. It was through this that McKay would develop his brilliant memory recall when drawing, something that would amaze his colleagues and friends for years to come. 
However, his father, Robert, would discourage his artistic endeavors at first, wanting him to go into a more stable business career, a move he would later regret. As a result, Windsor McKay, when Windsor McKay turned 19, he was sent to Cleary College in Yopaseni, Michigan, and 100 miles away from his family. However, McKay would never graduate as he rarely attended classes and often went to Detroit to earn money doing what he loved, drawing. He would find work at Sackett and Wiggins Wonderland, a dime museum that exhibited a mix of vaudeville, funhouse, and circus freak shows under one roof. These were inspired by the success of P.T. Barnum's own Ann Street Museum in New York. At Wonderland, McKay did paid sketches of all customers for 25 cents apiece, half going to the museum and the rest for himself, and was noted for always making the women looking beautiful, demonstrating an ability early on with giving customers what they wanted. His drawing ability would even make him popular at his college, and he would receive a notice in the Yopaseni uh, commercial newspaper on February 10, 1888. Of note, it acclaimed his work at the local post office, even calling him a professor at Cleary College, despite not having graduated. One of the earliest examples of McKay promoting himself, as he also learned the art of carnival barking at the Dime Museum. While there, McKay did take private lessons from Professor John Goodwin at Michigan State Normal School, now Eastern Michigan University, where he learned perspective and observation, something that would become evident in his later work on Little Nemo, along with using his past experience as a glass stainer to influence McKay's use of color in his art. McKay would call Goodwin an excellent teacher, while he even while well, he in turn praised McKay as a student, stating, if that young fellow doesn't smoke too many cigarettes, the world is going to hear from him. He has absorbed all of my teachings. McKay would later advance his artistic studies at the Art Institute in Chicago, where he went with his friend Mort Tovers in 1889. There, McKay worked at the National Printing and Engraving Company at 119 Monroe Street, a firm that specialized in show, commercial, and railroad printing. He started out as an apprentice, where he specialized in commercial prints, like posters, which was especially popular with the circuses, who often used 5,000 to 8,000 printings per show for promotion. In Chicago, he lived at 185 Dilburn Street at the same address as Jules Guerin. A noted painter would work at the Lincoln Memorial. The two quickly bonded and soon were teaching each other their respective abilities, with Guerin uh, teaching McKay figure and color, while McKay taught perspective and detail to him. McKay would later become a Freemason around this time, following in his father's footsteps, and while he did have a belief in God as required to be a Mason, he regularly mocked organized religion, which one would be one of his many targets in his future comic strips. McKay would later leave Chicago for Cincinnati, Ohio after two years, where he found work as an artist at the Cole and Middleton Dime Museum on Vine Street, and stay for the next nine years. This would be part of a lifelong work ethic with him, as McKay never left a job unless he had another one lined up, often a better one. The museum was owned by Charlie E. Cole and George Middleton and was known as the Circus of Informed Imagery. While in Cincinnati, McKay lived at the Crawford House, not far from the museum, on 6th and Walnut Street. It was here that McKay saw his first motion picture in 1896 with Thomas Edison's vitroscope with his son Robert, who would always say his father's heart belonged in Cincinnati, even if his future success took him elsewhere. Sadly, the Dime Museum was destroyed in 1957 to build a parking lot, which included the destruction of a great deal of McKay's artwork that was still there. While working at the museum, McKay would receive an interest from his art from uh, Philip P.H. Morton's Lithography and Painting Company. Morden, a painter and billboard entrepreneur, hired McKay to do advertising work for him. 
While doing this, artists would find themselves astonished at how fast and beautiful and accurate Winsor McKay's art was. When really claiming to watch him draw a perfect outline from start to finish without lifting his brush, and as a result, his work would attract large audiences just to walk him, watch him work on billboards. This would be something McKay would remember when he joined the vaudeville circuit years later with his chalk talks. McKay would also be involved in a three-dimensional display in the summer of 1898, meant to celebrate the Spanish-American War on July 3rd, specifically when the American Navy defeated Admiral Cervera's fleet off the coast of Santiago, Cuba. McKay designed a papier-mâché ship models to float on two separate coal barges down the Ohio River. The plan was to tow the barges to the center of the river where the Spanish fleet would then be destroyed by fireworks. The Ohio River represented the border of Ohio and Kentucky, with spectators from Cincinnati on the Ohio side while Covington was on the Kentucky side. McKay would play the part of Admiral Severa with more than helping man the Spanish fleet. At McKay's signal, a cannon would boom, raising the Spanish flag and signaling the tugboat to take the barge into the middle of the river. However, during the display, spectators, mostly hoodlums and overzealous patriots, threw objects at the fake Spanish fleet, forcing McKay to fire out the fireworks early as a distress signal as the tugboat retreated, leaving the barge floating dangerously toward the suspension bridge. Thankfully, another tugboat came to its rescue, returning the barges to the starting point, where, despite this near disaster, the whole display was restarted. McKay would be part of another display in the September of that year, doing artwork for the Grand Army of the Republic in Cincinnati at a convention, where he was contracted by the city to provide artwork, advertising, and a set of triumphant archers for the Grand Army to march under during the parade route. The archers were designed to be 30 feet high and allow spectators to sit in them to observe the parade, while McKay designed several medallions, eagles, and portraits to decorate them. These portraits, which were of Grant, Lee, Lincoln, and numerous other famous figures at the time, were so popular, Democratic leader Thomas Taggart bought them to put on display, and as of 1936, remained at the rotunda of the Hotel French Lick in Indiana. Coming to Cincinnati also improved McKay's personal life, as during his first year working for Cole and Middleton, on a a day in the summer of 1891, he met Maude Lenore DeFur over his clumsy dancing, as he had just finished a grotesque display at his uh, museum while enjoying a polka being played in the orchestra. Intrigued by Maude, McKay went home and immediately cleaned himself up, changing into a suit, as he was already developing a reputation for a sharp dresser. Maude was the youngest of three to a French-Canadian carriage painter, John DeFore, who had just recently died. Their courtship was swift, and the couple would elope in Covington, Kentucky a short time later. While a 10-year age difference, McKay was 24 and Maude 14, the couple would grow old together, staring married for 43 years till his death. Reportedly, Maude hated growing old, though, dyeing her hair black to her death, and part of the reason why McKay would try to claim he was younger was to lessen the age gap between them. Windsor would pamper Maude with numerous luxuries throughout their life, especially as his income grew, while Maude played the role of the perfect and supportive housewife, being an excellent cook and keeping a spotless house. Five years following their union, their son Robert was born on July 21, 1896, followed by their daughter, Mary and Elizabeth, on August 22, 1897. With a new family to support, Windsor McKay took up advertising to support them, picking up extra assignments from P.H. Morden, along with drawing lessons from Joseph Alexander, the manager of the Cincinnati Commercial Tribune Art Room. McKay would eventually join the Tribune Fuel Time that August when editor Charlie J. Christie enticed him with a matching his salary from his museum work, along with making, promising to make him one of the best damn newspaper men in the business. 
McKay replied, where do I hang my coat? At the Tribune, he provided illustrations for the news events as photography and papers were still in his infant stage, creating images of everything from arrival of the U.S. battleship Maine or mundane traffic jams with photorealistic detail. McKay also started doing caricatures and admired A.B. Frost, who was considered one of the greatest comics draftsmen in history at Life magazine, despite in hindsight depicting sexist and racist cartoons at the time. McKay would eventually produce cartoons for humor magazine Life himself on February 2, 1899, with the features Members of Congress, which sadly also showed McKay shared the racist attitudes of his time as well. He did receive a $50 for the cartoon. Sadly, tragedy would strike around this time as Windsor's brother, Arthur McKay, would be admitted to Traverse City State Hospital for a mental condition, eventually dying on June 15, 1946. Strangely, McKay would never visit or even mention his brother's existence, with many not learning of it till years after his own death. In 1900, Windsor McKay joined the Cincinnati Enquirer staff after a large salary offer by the paper's owner, John R. McLean. McKay would stay at the Enquirer for three years, eventually becoming the head of the art department and contributing hundreds of cartoons like Elk Circus on March 25, 1900, and Santa Claus Gift to the Detective on December 25th. Notably, McKay did the Tales of the Jungle Imps by Felix Fiddle, a series of 43 illustrations from January 11th to November 9th of 1903, which were based on the poems by George Randolph Chester about how animals adapted to survive in their worlds, usually brought on by a group of imps that started tormenting the featured animal until they learned to overcome them, sometimes with the help of some monkeys who mechanically alter the animals, such as giving giraffes their long necks. This would be McKay's first attempt in an extended comic strip series over a cohesive narrative and style. All of this would end when McKay received a job offer prompting a move to New York City, setting his career to its greatest heights. Windsor McKay and his family moved to New York City in 1903 when he was offered a position at the New York Herald. It began with a letter from Robert J. Carter, a former Cincinnati journalist now at the Herald, who reached out to McKay on September 15th of that year, arguing that New York would be the best place to expand his talents. McKay replied to the offer with some cartoon samples, and the Herald art director, A.C. Baker, said the art was satisfactory and looking forward to seeing McKay soon. McKay then sought the advice of the Enquirer editor, who said McKay should only go to New York if they offered to pay his travel expenses. While his wife Maud was reluctant about the move at first, Windsor looked forward to the new challenge, believing he had accomplished everything he could in Cincinnati. He started with 35 cartoons for the Herald and his sister paper, The Evening Telegram, and he started to join the early experiment of comic strips, along with the usual editorial and political cartoons. With each, he would sign Windsor MC. McKay also began a professional rivalry with Richard Altcott, the creator of The Yellow Kid, considering the first modern comic strip. This rivalry would lead Alcott to leave the New York Herald for the New York Journal, returning to his former employer and joining a growing list of cartoons under William Randolph Hearst's papers, who understood comic strips helped sell papers as they quickly became the most popular part of any paper, something that mostly remains to this day. One year after arriving in the New York Herald, McKay had an extraordinary rise as one of the top cartoonists in his field, immediately competing with Alcott for the title of most popular. They even competed on the co- outside the comics page when, when Alcott started doing vaudeville shows in 1905, only for McKay to follow in 1906. McKay would later state that he was not as organized as Alcott or a better businessman, but many would acclaim McKay as the better artist. Moving to New York, the McKays moved to the Hotel Autobahn until they were able to acquire a house. 
1905, they moved into the cottage at Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and McKay even parodied his house search in one of his rare bit fiend strips. Their home was an hour from Manhattan where his office was. Eventually, the McKays bought a house at 267 Southeast Street on 18th Street on May of 1906, and then in 1910, moved to a three-story house on Vinland Avenue. Eventually, McKay became so successful he was able to work from home and was even able to have a local boy, John A. Fitzsimmons, become his assistant and help on two of his future animated movies. McKay was able to enjoy his new lifestyle thanks to a significant bump in salary, starting at $60 a week at the Herald before eventually making $175 a week, along with bonuses for each editorial page. With this, plus royalties from Broadway shows and merchandising, McKay made $1,000 a week in 1909, the equivalent of $30,000 today. And that didn't even include the money he was making on his vaudeville tours. This McKay did through F.F. Proctor's 23rd Street Theater, where he performed twice a day for two weeks between the dates of June 11th through the 18th in 1909. For for his performances, McKay did chalk talks with lightning sketches, a technique he mastered back in his days of painting billboards, and he would use these to promote his comic strip, along with other products. Once again, McKay competed with Richard Alcott, who performed on the Keefe circuit and both would earn around $500 a week for their performances. Soon, McKay was touring regionally, having earned rave reviews from the press, despite still producing three strips a day along with follow-up art. Reportedly, many of McKay's most popular strips were produced in the dressing rooms backstage at several vaudeville theaters. Between this and his work as a cartoonist, Windsor McKay was now a full-fledged celebrity, and his comic strip career was only just beginning. But first, he had to find that hit series. And we will leave you here with his first part of the life of Windsor McKay, but join me again next week when Windsor McKay does find that hit series that will become one of the greatest comic strips ever created. Changing up our presentation while keeping the candidness that you enjoy. We'll cover all your favorite shows and movies with maybe a few surprises along the way. And you, yes you, will have opportunities to be on our show on a regular basis. That's right, you've got the Zoom Pro account and we're going to use it. So be ready. Find us at nerdblisspodcast.com and esonetwork.com. And on all the socials at NerdBlissPod. NerdBliss, listen up. Now is April 28th, 2022, time for the favorite comic book of the week. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, number 5, by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, which uh, concludes this uh, story that finds Michelangelo, the last surviving uh, Ninja Turtle, taking on Hiroto, the Shredder's uh, grandson, in a final battle. Meanwhile, Casey, the daughter of Casey Jones and April O'Neil, discovers a shocking, shocking truth about herself. This is a great conclusion to this story arc, which is more or less Eastman Laird's Dark Knight Returns, the Teenage Mutant Turtles giving a final concluding story arc. And it gives it a nice, and it most, for the most part, it hits every, it's every note. It has the nice beats of emotional ups and downs, brings a nice resolution to the whole story while the characters, along with a nice little bit of a hope for maybe some future stories in a brand new direction. But this is definitely slams the door on the story of the original Ninja Turtles in a pretty fun way, bit dark, definitely a bit dark at times, but 
but uh, great read regardless. So if you're a Ninja Turtle fan, definitely check this out. And of course, yeah, a little bit pricier because it's a large format at $8.99, but definitely well worth the wait. Beautiful art and uh, storytelling. And yeah, for Ninja Turtle fans, it's a great read. And that will conclude this part of the biography of the great Windsor McKay. Join me again next week for the second part. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself a good comic book.